Hello there and welcome. Hugh here once again to share with you the fourth episode of The Friendly Podcast, a multimedia project courtesy of Ireland Yearly Meeting. I'm here to share a range of interviews with folks from both home and abroad to explore their views about being friends today. First up this time we pay tribute to a prominent Irish Quaker family, the Bewleys, who originated in Cumberland in England, moved to Ireland in the 17th century. In the late 19th century they began operations on South Great George's Street and Westmoreland Street in Dublin. The flagship Grafton Street Cafe was opened in 1927. Victor Bewley became director of the company at the age of 20 and by the mid-1930s had been appointed managing director, following in the footsteps of his father and grandfather before him. Victor's granddaughter Fiona Murdoch conducted a series of interviews with him in the 1990s, which are documented in a recently updated memoir. Here Fiona and Victor's daughter Heather tell me more about the life he led. Granddad as I knew him, Victor Bewley, was born in 1912. His father, Ernest Bewley, had bought land in 1900 in Rathgar, which was a village then. Um, so I think it was 30 acres where he built a very nice house. And then it became the Bewley farm. So that's where um, Grandad grew up. Um, his uh, parents were quite different. I mean, they were both Quakers, but um, his mum, he, he described her as a simple woman with a simple lifestyle but also a woman of action. So if they discussed, if they were having a discussion about something, it would always conclude with, well, what are we going to do about it? What can we do now? Um, and this was, I think, very much influenced by her upbringing. Her first nine years were spent in Madagascar. Her parents were missionaries there. His mum, Susan, had trained as a psychiatric nurse, and she must have had a good sense of sense of humor because she said her training as a psychiatric nurse was a great help in bringing up her children. Granddad said she was a great mother, entirely devoted to her children, and all kinds of people were welcomed to Danum. And people who were different were always seen as a point of interest. So a wide range of people were welcomed as visitors uh, to Danum. And then his father, Ernest, uh, was a very, very hard worker. He had great energy and ideas. He was ambitious. Um, his motto was the best of everything, and that's not good enough. So Ernest um, would have was involved in Beauty's Cafes, which were started by his father, Joshua, in the 1840s. Ernest would have taken over Georgia Street and Westmoreland Cafes. But then he bought the premises in Grafton Street and it was Ernest who was responsible for doing out the premises so lavishly with the marble tables, the velvet, red velvet boots and the fabulous Harry Clark windows. So although he was a Quaker, he definitely enjoyed a sort of a comfortable and possibly almost flamboyant lifestyle. Um, it was a very fine house that, that, he, that he built at Danham. And um, towards the end of his life, he even bought a Bentley, which he enjoyed driving around Dublin um, at a time when there probably weren't even that many cars in Dublin. So there were these two different aspects that Victor grew up with. Um, it was a Quaker upbringing, but his parents, and he said they had a very strong sense of what was right and what was wrong. Um, and yet his parents very much encouraged them to think for themselves and to, to question and explore their own path in life in relation to spirituality and their beliefs 
and he had a good relationship with his siblings too. There were, and he said he was very lucky. He he's very happy. He had very happy memories of growing up on the farm. A lot of it outdoors, spent with his siblings. Sylvia, then he was the eldest son, and then came Doris, who many people who might listen to this podcast would know as um, Doris Johnson. She had a twin, Ralph, who sadly died at age two and a half. Then there was Alfred, and then a big gap to Joe, who was the youngest. So there was always other children to play with. Looking back, he would say it was a very privileged lifestyle, um, which he probably took for granted at the time because he knew no different. And it was interesting because in later years, well, we'll come to that later, I presume, he actually um, decided he he wasn't comfortable with that lifestyle and, and he built quite a small, simple bungalow in the Dublin mountains and lived as simple and self-sufficient a lifestyle as possible. And did he always want to be a businessman? Was that something that he was drawn to? Not at all. He was always interested in hearing about the cafes from his father, but he felt, he would have said throughout his life, he, he never felt like a natural businessman but as the eldest son he knew he was expected to take over the running of the business but really it just did not feel right for him but and he resented it for a long long time throughout his life but now in retirement years he said he no longer resented it but I mean for a long time he did his interests lay in maybe a more creative he said he would love to have been an artist and he did um he did fabulous oil paintings mainly of landscapes for pleasure throughout his life um and he said in some ways he was able to use his artistic bent in businesses he enjoyed doing the window displays in Westmoreland Street he enjoyed doing the coffee tastings which were several times a week I think and um, that was kind of a type of art almost in in the sense of mixing and blending different tastes and, and colors um, I think there were he said up to 10 teas would go into blend and not not so many coffees but there were still blending there as well he loved playing the pianist and playing the piano sorry and um, dreamed of being a concert pianist he particularly enjoyed playing Mozart, Be- Mozart Beethoven and Chopin but when he was older he realized he wouldn't have been good enough to to make a career of it, but he did very much enjoy it. And then he also thought very much about being a missionary and possibly um, going out to Madagascar like his maternal grandparents had. And his idea of being a missionary wasn't so much about converting people, but about relieving or alleviating suffering and helping underprivileged people, which, as we know, he did go on to do in his voluntary work in his life. but yeah, no, from the age of 17, he worked in the cafes and his father died a couple of years later. So at age 20, he started, he took over the running of the business and was made managing directing, director the following year. But he felt it wasn't natural, but, but he did okay. He kept the business going. And Heather, just in terms of his involvement with the local meeting, the yearly meeting, was he active in that sense too? Oh yes, uh, when, from a from a child, the family at, he he attended church town meeting, and that was his meeting for all his life. Um, sometimes it was a small meeting initially, and there might have only been a dozen at church town, which is hard to imagine these days. And if there was no Sunday school, then he and his brothers and sisters would bring along suitable reading matter. But at home, they would have had Bible passages read in the morning and the evening at meal times, and family prayers were said. 
Um, both my parents, Victor and Winifred, they met through Dublin Young Friends Group. And dad's had time to serve as, sorry about the cuckoo, dad served as clerk of Dublin Monthly Meeting and also Ireland Julie Meeting, as did my mum. And they were both uh, elders and were uh, regular attenders at those meetings. So this is Ireland Julie Meeting in the, in the 50s? In the 50s? You caught me then. I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> no, no, just, um, just in, Probably. Um, do you, just do you have any sense of what yearly meeting was like at that time? What it might have been like I, at that time. I would or... picture. I can sort of picture going into um, number six Eustace Street, which is now the Irish Film Institute, I think, and the lovely big big room. And if you arrived late, there were red um, cordons across the, the the entrance doors, and you weren't allowed in until after the meeting for worship. And the the main room would have well, certainly at my age, it seemed to be full of people. Um, you know, so it's a attendant, and then you know when the sessions were over, people would emerge out into the vestibule with the you know the glass ceiling, and there would be crowds of people there. And it was a lovely opportunity to meet uh, so many friends from you know from the north and south and you know different parts of the country. And Fiona, did his faith grow as he got older, as as uh, he became more prominent in the business world? Oh, definitely. Um, he, as I said, he was encouraged to think for himself um, and to question, which he certainly did in his teenage and early adult years, I would think. He went to Bootham, the Quaker school in York, to boarding school, and um, he got quite a shock when he heard some of the views held there um, by people maybe who didn't know the Bible well or who didn't see it as of having any relevance to their lives. Um, and when he came back from school, like there was only about 12 people attending church town meeting and he felt he always knew what they were going to say when they got up. He knew their views very well. And he, for a time, he really wanted to go to Eustace Street where he felt he would hear different views. But in fact, um, in his young adult years, church town began to grow. And he enjoyed that and the different range of views that people brought with him, brought with them. Um, and he, like throughout his life, he loved hearing, he loved meeting new people and reading books and um, hearing kind of what was meaningful for people in their lives. And I suppose he developed his ideas, his own ideas through that. Um, he had some lovely um descriptions of his belief and, and prayer in the book I don't know if it would be okay to to read a couple of paragraphs just of to because because his words are much better than mine of course of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay it isn't about a plug for the book but um he said if I was asked to put religious experience into simple words which is not easy to do I would say that I believe there is a power greater than ourselves and outside of ourselves that can touch us, mold us, guide us, strengthen us and shed light on life's path. That power is love. To know this power is not a matter of intellectual understanding, but a matter of experience. To orientate our lives towards the spirit of love is the way to the experience. If we aim to do this, it profoundly affects our values and our whole list of priorities. It affects our attitudes to our fellow men and our attitudes to material possessions. I don't see any division between that and the way an evangelical expresses his or her beliefs, 
although we are using different words. It is the same spirit that we're talking about. He that liveth in love liveth in God. I think people who really experience this find that they not only want to bring their own lives into harmony with the spirit of love, but that they also want to create conditions around them that are in harmony with that spirit. In terms of his relationship with other Quaker businesses, were they fairly strong? Well, not really with other Quaker businesses, no, because the Quaker school in Dublin was, was never very big. But dad, So Dad would have known the friends, you know, working in other businesses, and there'd have been Jacobs, but they were biscuits. Pims were the draper shop in Georgia Street. It was good bodies were uh, stockbrokers, and there was Walpole's household or haberdashery. Um, so they wouldn't have been in competition with each other. So they must have been pretty close in terms of their their common bond of being friends then. Well, they were probably you know, met at monthly meeting and things yeah. like that. <laughs> I don't know what, how regular attenders they were. <laughs> but I mean, they say they would have met probably at a yearly meeting and other times like that. Some of them anyway. Just in terms of the cafe itself, can you describe it to me and how it changed over the years? Well, as Fiona said, when when, um, Dad went into the business, he was still quite young, went straight in from school. And um, at the time in Dublin, there was an awful lot of poverty and the housing conditions were awful and the slums dreadful. And there could be whole families living in one room. And often there wasn't, there would only be one toilet for the whole house full in the the basement. and then during the Second World War, uh, the children often suffered illnesses because the families were too poor to buy the proper food or cook it or to get the fuel. So um, Dad initiated a meal scheme which ran for three or four years. Um, this is during the war, uh, where volunteer staff served the meals to the children um, after the business had closed in the evenings. And this was arranged in conjunction with local medical staff and, and hospitals. And at Christmas, my uncle Alfred dressed up as Santa Claus and presents were given to the children. And I'm not sure whether this was the then followed on in later years, right up to my time, when young friends used to have a Christmas party and um, for, for some of the local children and give out presents. This was in number six. But then also uh, leftover food at the end of the day was donated to different charities. And this was long long before food crowd, isn't that what happens these days? Mm -hmm. And in the 1960s, milk and buns were given to school for travel children in Cherry Orchard Camp near Clendalkin. So that was sort of the environment Dad was in. Um, Times changed and along came uh, self-service staff. And um, that, you know, that less less staff, if you like. But when when the self-service began, Dad didn't want to make anybody redundant. So in those days, many of the staff would have been women. And when they got married and the family started, they would then have given up working. And so gradually over the years, then the numbers would have dropped down uh, to what was the number of staff that were required for self-service. And then when the younger generation came along and wanted to st- suggest that Bewley should have a presence out in the shopping centres in Stilorgan and Dundrum, uh, Dad was happy to support them in that idea. But in, in 1972, along with Uncle Alfred and Uncle Joe, I suppose the main thing in the cafes, the, the, the business was that um, Dad looked into the possibility of having common ownership. And so Bewley's became a, a common ownership company, uh, uh, where, which meant that um, nobody could sell the business for private property, pro- pro- private gain rather. Uh, and anybody, any of the staff who'd been in, in the business for over three years, 
could be part of that community and have a say in, in the decision making of the running of the firm. And that was the Bewley community, was it? Yes. So was there an overarching reason why he set that up? Well, I mean, you can remember, well, maybe you don't, but um, there was a recent firm, um, I suppose about a dozen years ago, who had just closed down overnight and there'd be people working there for, for many, many years and they were out of business. So the, the, the dad, when he went in from school, he couldn't have managed on his own. He realised that uh, there were people there from his dad's time with so much experience and he he got advice from them and he couldn't have done it without um, various members of staff. And so he appreciated the input from other people and he, he didn't feel it was right for a few family members to have the ability, if you like, to, to make decisions about uh, the business, which was the life, the, the workplace for, for so many people and who had, which was their contribution, who contributed to making the, the firm as successful as it was. Yeah, like it, it was about valuing everybody. Um, so anybody, any staff member who'd been there more than three years could join. And there was a structure for um, enabling all members of staff to, to have a say in the running of the business. Um, it wasn't just about sharing the profits. So half of all profits made went to charity. And those charities were, um, that was, they were decided by a committee of 12 people um, they were members of the community. So 12 people represented different departments of the business and they chose which charities the profits went to. And then half the profits were divided equally among all community members. But I think Grandad felt it wasn't even so much, it was more important giving this structure so that staff could have a say and be involved in making decisions. That was actually a more important aspect than the profit sharing. I mean, the profits were never huge anyway, so by the time they were divided, it wasn't massive. But um, it was about valuing everybody and giving them... He said, as a result, he, he could see people grow in dignity. Um, and he knew, like, it was a big step to take. Like, we don't know of any company in Ireland before or since that has taken this step, although some people did talk to Grandad at different times to ask him about it because they were interested but he wasn't aware of anybody who actually went through with it at the time and um, so he said there was a possibility staff might make a decision we didn't agree with but it was a step we had to take in faith believed that in the right spirit difficulties could be overcome with oh sorry could be overcome with understanding so that was 1972 and he retired in 1977 and he believed firmly that it worked, that it was a success. Um, and I mean, he didn't mention the Quaker testimonies when he talked to me about it, but I mean, it was just obvious. Can I ask in terms of role models or people that he looked up to, were there many in his life? I'm sure Jesus uh, would have been a role model for dad. As Fiona said, his dad respected everybody, each individual. And so this particularly in the business, you're treating people with equal and respecting their skills and contribution. Um, I think that that would have been something very important to him. I don't remember him talking about Mahatma Gandhi, but I'm sure he would have been in sympathy with Gandhi's work for trying to improve you know, the lives of people in India. And um, so, so those are the people who come to my mind. Was retirement hard for him? Well, no, because, um, you know, he'd been working hard. It had been his, taken up so much of his life for so many years. 
Um, but by that time, he had already had re reduced his hours in the business and had been gone, begun working with, with others to help improve the living conditions for travellers. And he had become advisor to the Minister for Local Government. In fact, in 1974, he was invited to, to serve there. And he's held in that position until 1988. And this involved a lot of traveling to meetings of residents or the county council members around the country, as well as meeting traveler families. So he was, you know, he was busy. Um, he would be disappointed to hear the recent report, recently reported figures of the disproportionately high number of travelers in prison community now and the low numbers in the workforce and the high numbers of suicide amongst traveler people. However, he would be happy that to hear of those who'd successfully completed the third level education and those who'd met the accommodation requirements met whatever they people wanted, whether they wanted to keep, be able to keep moving or, or to settle. When he did have time, he enjoyed being out on the farm at home here and working in the garden. But as I say, by the time he left work, he was already involved with the travellers. And um, then you may be aware that he was also um, uh, concerned and, and had some had involvement in trying to bring peace in, in Northern Ireland because that was um, prior to him retiring also. Did you get an insight into his thoughts on what happened in the North in the 70s and how the wider Quaker community reacted to that? Well, he was very disturbed by the troubles in the North and um, that they started in 1969. I, I remember I was at a, a Young Friends conference at Dublin Irish for Young Friends that organised in what used to be Drawder Grammar School in those days. That was 1969. In 1972, three years later, uh, Dad received a pamphlet in the post, um, which he felt was very bitter and anti-republic. But there was no name attached. He didn't know why he'd got it or who'd written it and um, who he could reply to. It just said that it was compiled by a group of moderate Protestant unionists. So he felt he wanted to reply, but the only way he could think of doing was to write to three of the local paper, the, the papers in the South here, in the hopes that somebody would reply. And he, he said that he felt while there were religious differences on the island, we had a lot more in common. But from, from his letters to the paper, he got about 60 or 70 replies from people um, and from this group, he, um, he, he, he arose a number of meetings um, and he, he um, invited people to these meetings and, and they were held, the first one I think was held in, in Eustace Street, uh, I might be wrong on that, um, but then there were a number of meetings up in Ballinascanlan near the border. And they made very useful contacts. And, and Joe Dad would invite the people to, to these meetings. Um, but many of these meetings, the, the people at the meetings, they had other contacts. And so contacts were made at a, at a wider um at a, a wider spread and it came to the point in fact that it, and dad was put in touch with some uh, IRA people and he was asked to bring a note to the member to a member of the British government in, in London a contact was arranged through an, Ar an English friend um, but unfortunately nothing actually developed from this visit as they weren't able to meet up with the person they'd hoped to in London and the Northern Ireland branch of the IRA were not in favour of these, if you like, conciliatory contacts being made. Um, but as regards other people's involvement in, in the troubles, yes, there were many friends involved in different ways of trying to um, bring about peace. 
and Quaker Peacebuilding Initiatives in Northern Ireland, 1969 to 2007, are described very clearly in the book Coming from Silence, which was edited by Felicity McCartney and Anne Lemaire. So um, there was involvement in the Glen Cree uh, Centre for Re Reconciliation in County Wicklow, where different communities came down from the north to have the opportunity to have discussions and different activities there. Um, Quaker Service, Frederick Street Meeting House was used by families for overnight refuge. A number of British friends came over to live in the north of Ireland and to try and establish cross-country, cross-community links. And there was a programme started in Frederick Street Meeting House arranged by some volunteer friends. And then a watching committee was set up by British and Irish friends. And from this came Quaker House Belfast in 1982, which was used as a neutral venue for different groups to meet right up to 2007. This was an initiative managed by friends from both Britain Yearly Meeting and from Ireland Yearly Meeting, North and South. And as in Quaker United Nations offices in Geneva and New York, it was a place where informal and off-the-record meetings could take place between part different parties. Various friends acted as friends in residence and arranged these meetings. They, they, they lived in Quaker House. There was also the Quaker Peace Education Project was started by the Peace Committee. The prison visitor centres were established at the Mays and Long Kesh prison. Many friends were involved in that because these were for families travelling from a distance to visit their relatives imprisoned um, as a result of the violence. And while some of these activities have ended, others have adapted to meet the ongoing needs of the communities in the north. Just in terms of Quaker House in Belfast, so you're saying that closed down in 2007. Do you think that the loss of that has been felt? Um, has that been sort of a, a very obvious void that's been left behind? No, I don't think so. Um, and I, I think it served a purpose. Now, I wasn't involved in any way, Hugh, but um, I think it served its purpose. And the friends who were involved and, you know, didn't, people were served at different lengths of time in, in the management of that. But I think felt that other uh, people in the wider community were taking up if you like, the idea, and there was more community bridge building going on. And um, there wasn't perhaps the same need for friends that people had, were now uh, uh, talking to each other. Um, and so friends had, had played their part and stepped back. Fiona, what did you learn about this whole process of writing the book and the fact that it's been recently updated? Do you think Victor would have looked on it in a different way than you were probably, probably hoping or expecting? Well, it's funny because when he did retire, I know different members of the family suggested to him that he write his memoirs and he would always just chuckle and say, who on earth would want to read my memoirs? So it wasn't something he ever thought of doing or wanted to do. And I was quite surprised a few years later then after I trained in journalism and worked in journalism for a couple of years. Well, my gran my mum said to me, it would be such it would be so good to have in writing, you know, granddad's life story and why he did the things that he did just, just for the family, for members of the family. So I asked him again and was very, very surprised and delighted when he said he would be willing. And he said, if I went to a publisher to go to Veritas because they had published a book that he had written about the traveling people in the early seventies. Um, and yeah, so 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 I have about ten hours of tape um, 
of my talking to him. And it was fascinating. And I, even at the time, I, I knew it was such a privilege. Um, and of course, I learned new things, lots of new things about him that I hadn't known. Um, and I have no idea what he would think of it. It's funny, at, at the, it, it didn't actually, it took another few years before I actually compiled the book and approached Veritas and Grandad had actually passed away by then. And so he wasn't around for, for the first launch. And to be honest with you, I think he'd have felt quite uncomfortable about it being in the public eye yet again, which was never something he particularly enjoyed. And I remember at the first launch, which was hosted by the Campbells in, in Grafton Street, Beauties, um, somebody said to me, such a shame Victor's not here. He'd have loved it. And I thought that was really strange. And that person obviously did not know my grandfather because he wouldn't have enjoyed the fact that there was a room full of people there to celebrate him and his life. Um, so, and the updated uh, version, I mean, it has an updated preface, but otherwise, obviously, the memoirs are still the same. But given the depth of feeling there is any time Beauties and Grafton Street comes under threat and the wave of nostalgia it releases, I mean, Beauties cafes just hold such a special place in so many people's hearts. And um, I thought, gosh, well, I mean, Beauties and Grafton Street did come under threat again last year. And um, perhaps perhaps there is an interest in this, not, not just in the Quaker community, but in, in the wide, wider Irish society. Um, so well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but obviously, Campbell's uh, bought Beauties in 1986. So as I said, Grandad felt that the beauty community was a success. But unfortunately, in the 1980s, I mean, it was a time of recession. Of course, so many businesses suffered and folded. Um, I so he did say he was. He was. I mean, I'm sure he was very sad to see the cafes go out of the family. Now, what he thought about changes the Campbells made over the years, I have no idea. Do you think the story of Bewley's would be very different if it had happened in 21st century Ireland? With just how Ireland has developed as a country, how the culture has changed, do you think, do you think his story would be different if he was living through these times? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, people obviously love the old beauties in terms of the cafes and the fact that Campbell's in their most recent refurbishment uh, in the past the two, over two years ago have gone back to the old style beauties. People really appreciate that. In terms of, I'm quite sure he would be as busy working with, not well, he could be as involved in with travellers or or other underprivileged or or there's still cross border there's still reconciliation work to be done in the north. Um, what do you think, Heather? Well, so another of his interests, I don't think we've mentioned, was you know he was friends of his time. There were a number of friends who who would be would have contacts with prisoners. They would be involved in prison visiting and trying to help. Um, People when they came out of prison, when they were released, um, that there was a halfway house um, prisoners aid through community effort. I think there was dad wasn't involved in that, but you know, it's somewhere for somebody been in prison maybe for years to adapt to the changes that had taken place. And and so he 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 did try to help a few people uh, individually to to you know to get used to the you know the, 
looks rather like some of us in the, this day and age who've been cocooning for the last year. You know, you know, outramen and closed, restricted situation where, you know, in prison, you, you, you don't have the opportunity to make many of your choices. You're, you know, you're, you're regulated. And, and now there's prospect of coming out, you know, it's quite relevant. But you know, that's you know, frivolous compared to the situation of people in prison. I only ask that question just in terms of me and where I am with with my age. Uh, it's only ever been from this perspective. And as you say, Fiona, it's, you know, I'm looking at Bewley's as sort of a um, a legacy in some ways. And it's great to see that um, that there is such a love for it. Um, but I have nothing to compare it to. And so that's just only why I asked, do you think it would be very different if it was uh, alive and breathing under a under a Quaker name uh, today. Yeah, and um, one interesting thing, sorry, I don't think we mentioned actually when he to, when he would have taken over the running of the business. So in the early 30, 1930s, I think it was probably quite high class, and it was had quite a sophisticated upper class, maybe clientele. But one thing that was really important to him was to try and keep the prices down as much as possible and make it as open to all members of society um, and it's interesting a few people of my contemporaries middle age um, in have said recently they can they can they remember the fact that there was such a broad range of clientele and beauties um, and all ages and all backgrounds and people who perhaps hadn't had a bath in a while or you know everybody was welcomed um so i think that would still be the case today if, if granddad was running it yeah just again to put it in perspective Bewley's on Westmoreland Street is now Starbucks. So <laughs> uh, that's that's all I have. That's all I have to sort of that's the ballpark that I have to deal with or to work with. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know any different. Um, so yeah. it's it's that's just sort of where I'm coming from with that. Um, of course. So I compiled this book 20 years ago. So it's been interesting looking back at it again now with fresh eyes, I suppose. I think it's really, really interesting that. I mean, there's a whole section, as you know, on faith and spirituality. He didn't mention, Granddad didn't mention the Quaker testimonies once. Peace, simplicity, equality, integrity and community. And yet they shine the whole way through his, through the book, the whole way through his, because they shone through his life. So it's kind of shown me faith is less about what you say. It's more about what you do and how you live your life. And I think... If I could rewind back where, when I was liaising with Veritas, I might always almost want to say, could we add a subtitle on the cover, Faith in Action? Because I think that sums up Grandad's life. Next up on the list of interviewees is Freya Blythe, who's part of Britain Yearly Meeting and an active member of European and Middle Eastern Young Friends. She's passionate about acting and making positive changes in the world. When we spoke during lockdown, she had recently returned from a trip to Jerusalem, not her first time to visit that city. I went out first to Jerusalem, to Israel, about five years ago, straight after graduation. And I went out and worked in a project in the north of Israel, in Nazareth. And I worked in, it was in maternity ward of a hospital. So that was, and and then ended up doing community theatre as well. When they found out I was an actress, they were like, okay, great. And then I went, just now I've been out and I lived there for a year working as a children's librarian. So all stories, but it was a, yeah, it was 
working for a school, being a school librarian and running community projects? I think for me, it's absolutely fascinating. It's one of the places of such extreme conflict in the world. So when you're looking at kind of peace and the testimony of peace that we obviously hold, for me, that's a place that um, I can see a very clear need for that peace. Um, and I'm myself, I'm half Greek Cypriot and Cyprus is just 11 miles off the coast of Israel. So very close in kind of culture and yeah, so I did feel really drawn to that. And I think there's a, a fire to both Arabic culture and Israeli culture that's beautiful and, and loving and warm and giving. But there's also um, a lot of problems that come with that as well. So I've kind of enjoyed becoming a part and learning a lot more about what's going on and what has been going on in the last few years. Jerusalem reminds me in a way of Dublin in that it's small, it's so small, it's tiny, and you can really, really walk around on foot and it's, everything is 2000 years old. It's extraordinary. It's just like you're walking on ancient ground the whole time. The house I ended up living in was 2000 years old, um, which is just amazing. And it's all built out of this beautiful Jerusalem stone, which is this kind of iconic, um, similar to a sandstone, but kind of a warm yellow color and everything's, um, very sun-kissed and um, familiar all in these kind of little groups but everybody knows everybody and kind of everywhere you turn you end up reading a sign that's just kind of this way to the pool of Bathsheba or this way to the you know the burial ground of Jesus or the place where he rose again it's all it's kind of like seeing history come alive and as somebody who's loves faiths and working with I work with um, kind of yeah, the Quaker interfaith groups. So looking at the way that the different faiths in Jerusalem come together is really beautiful and kind of wanting to encourage that is, is something that really interests me about the culture. So the subtext of this new podcast is trying to collate a collection of Quaker voices. Can you tell me about your introduction to Quakers and how that has, has evolved over the years? <laughs> So I originally found Quakers because I started going to church. I'm from a non-religious family. Started going to church when I was 11. And my friend um, said to me, would I like to go with her to her camp, um, her summer camp, which turned out to be junior yearly meeting. And I had thought that it was going to be fairly similar to a Christian kind of camp and was, was very surprised when it wasn't. So that was the first one. And that turned out to be JYM at nearly meeting, which was the Canterbury one. So that was when we had the kind of commitment to sustainability um, at the Canterbury, uh, Canterbury BYM. So that was an extraordinary experience of Quakerism at the start. And I think that sort of really made me fall in love with Quakerism, that this was a religion that was also moving forward and developing with the times rather than something that was and kind of more stationed in looking backwards. And how have you found your relationship with Quaker meeting? Has that evolved? What do you get out of it? Do you seek that out on a regular basis? I wish I sorted out on a more regular basis because when I do, I absolutely adore it. I did join, after going there, I did join Kendall Quaker meeting, which was my local meeting at the time. 
and I was a regular member of that for many years but then since after university kind of hopping around to different countries obviously a lot of the time if I'm living abroad living in Israel or living in the Philippines or in these different countries I've been working in there isn't always a steady stable Quaker meeting and one of the things that I've loved about lockdown is that everything's gone online and I've been sat in Jerusalem joining Woodbrook's um, Quaker meeting or joining kind of young friends Quaker meetings from around the world so that's been an absolute joy and then also doing equipping for ministry which is a two-year Woodbrook program to allow Quakers to kind of develop their ministries and that has also gone online and I've loved being able to be a part of that as well so that's allowed me to have much more we we meet some people meet every morning as a part of our equipping for ministry to have worship and, and we meet at least once a week it's the opposite to when you were in church in church I find I'm listening to what's going on but I'm I'm not listening to the spirit I'm listening I'm learning in church I'm singing or I'm listening to a sermon in meeting I'm listening to the spirit and I'm looking kind of to the inward God I find the, the God that's in me that the light that's in me rather than the external divine and I find that extremely balancing and really reassuring and yes grounding despite the first 20 minutes always being me obsessed with what I'm going to eat lunch once I've settled into it it gets a lot better yeah do you see God on a daily basis oh my goodness I mean I live by the ocean so I can't look outside without seeing creation I mean I have the sunset setting right down in a huge kind of golden red orb into the ocean every night and every night I just feel like looking at it and I'm like well that wasn't a mistake though that wasn't that there's something so special about the earth that we live in and I see it in every every smile every coincidence every time I see somebody who looks uh, lonely and I go over and speak to them there's something that I really love about living in a small community because I do find it easier to see God in small ways and small miracles because you're experiencing a similar thing each day so there is that kind of it's easier to notice small things and um, yeah and just in gratitude as well. Can I ask you about the Young Friends community that you've been involved with over the years has that been very important to you? Very it's been very important and in fact many of my close close friends are formed from YFGM, which is Young Friends General Meeting in the UK. It's been very powerful. And it's also really given me a community of people who have similar morals, values, and who are aiming to live those values out. And it's given a wonderful community for discussion. I think a lot of the time we're drawn to people who think exactly what we think and um, are doing what we're already doing. And so we're then kind of constantly confirmed by the group around us. Whereas when you kind of gather um, a group of young Quakers, like in Young Friends General Meeting, there are people doing all different things from all different backgrounds and, and with different views about God or spirituality. Do you find that permeates to the wider yearly meeting? Hmm, that's a good question. I think with the wider yearly meeting, I've been, I think, three times to Britain Yearly Meeting. I think I feel more part of Young Friends General Meeting and my local meetings 
than I do of Britain Yearly Meeting. And part of that might be because like yourself, I'm a part of European and Middle Eastern Young Friends and a part of Equipping for Ministry that I've already mentioned that spans across Europe as well. So I kind of feel a part of the wider Quaker community. I think with Britain Yearly Meeting, I don't feel like I've had as much engagement with Britain Uni meeting as a whole, but I think there's been something incredibly special whenever I've got to go um, and, and been enabled financially to go because that obviously can be a challenge for young people. But whenever I have been and to see so many Quakers gathering together in kind of joined ministry is just so powerful, so powerful. Do you think it's a question of structures and how yearly meeting could be more efficient in welcoming young friends to the wider yearly meeting? Yes. <laughs> and I'm answering quite definitively yes, because I'd love to see more of that in the future. Definitely. I, I think they've just started in the last year a programme of regional um, workers, kind of development people that they've planted regionally across the UK. And I'm curious to see, as I'm sure everybody is, how that kind of develops. So I think that they are acknowledging um, this kind of need. But I think, yes, having kind of people who understand the local needs differently, because obviously Brittany in a meeting is based in London. And, and as you were mentioning kind of earlier, it can be quite different if you're in a city to if you're living remotely. And I live in Wales. So that feels very far away, you know, in a tiny remote town in Wales, feels very far away from London and the needs and experiences will be different living here. So I think widening their reach and having people who understand those local um, communities as well could be really important in gathering together. Um, and yes, involving young people in the decision making is what's so key, I think. Yeah. Are there any issues that are being discerned within Burton Yearly Meeting that speak to you at the moment? At the moment, we're updating the book, and I think that's really exciting. So updating and making, um, including new voices in our faith and practice, and that's really exciting. My sister, my younger sister, who's just 19, she's been a part of kind of gathering together some young voices for that. And that's been really exciting for her. Again, I've seen her excitement um, as I had of kind of like, oh, look, this religion moves forward. This religion includes more voices. And so I, I am excited that that will potentially kind of include more Quaker voices in the actual texts that we use. Um, and that hopefully will reflect more, yeah. Can you tell me more about the work that you've been involved with over the years? Uh, you were mentioning earlier about working in the library in Jerusalem, but you were also mentioning the Philippines and other places. Just your approach to travel and what you what you get out of that, and has your view on travel changed in the midst of all these restrictions? Mm -hmm. It's a great question, and it's a great question as well because of how it links to my Quaker values. Obviously, we have a lot of people um, who you know are choosing not to travel by by plane. Um, and things like this to support sustainability, which I absolutely support um, and do feel passionately about. And yeah, at the same time, yeah, I'm working in all of these different countries. Yeah, I think that for me, a huge part of my faith 
in general, however you're going to, whatever words I sometimes use quite Christian language, and um, which some Quakers kind of um, prefer not to, which is absolutely fine. So anyone listening, please um, swap out God for whatever feels more comfortable, the light, the divine. I use quite Christian language and um, to help me express my experiences. And for me, it was very important from a young age that my faith was expressed in what I do in my daily life. And I could see that there was need in the world. And for me, the sustaining of human life and the bringing joy and peace and love and inspiration to people has always been a driving factor. Um, and in some of the places I've I've been to, I've looked around me and gone, how can you not be asking God to retrain as a doctor and come back out and help in this way? But this is not what I'm on this earth to do. What I'm here to do is to tell stories that I love to do. I love to go to other places and work with local people and um, telling them stories and gathering their stories or helping them tell their stories in order that I think that when people's stories are told, there's a power to that. There's a power to not just viewing people's experiences as numbers, not just saying, okay, in the Philippines, one in three women are sex trafficked. One in three children um, are going to be um, sexually you know, used, used in some way. But actually saying, this is a girl, her name is Mary, and she wants to be a ballerina and she loves pink and she wakes up every morning and hums classical music to herself because she wants to dance. There's a power when you connect with the actual human being rather than just the figure or the statistic. And I think that's been something that's really driven me. So whether it's kind of acting, which I do, writing, uh, interviewing people or working in libraries, which I've also trained to do, there's a power in telling these stories and sharing these stories. And one of the things that surprised me, I went out and did some work in the Philippines and I was working in a slum out in Manila in an illegal community kind of where, you know, most of the shacks are built of corrugated iron and cardboard, and very, very, very basic. So there's no running water, no electricity. Um, and the need that I was working with, with the street children, the need is so clear on every level. They need food, they need medical care, they need education. It's, it's so stark. And yet so many of these problems are systemic. So many of these problems have to start from the top down. So what can we actually do? And I worked with five local women who are born and brought up in that area. And what we were doing, and I just joined in with what they were already doing, but what they were doing was going around and um, using finger puppets to tell stories and giving them scraps of paper and crayons and doing colouring with the children. And it was just this expression of joy, expression of allowing them to be children and to have this laughter and excitement and creative expression and there was something very very precious about that that was as essential I would say to being um, a full person and having that creative outlet um, and being seen as somebody who has something to offer not just somebody who needs something all the time that was really beautiful really touched me. It sounds like you're somebody who puts their faith into action on a daily basis and 
as much as you can bring those te- those Quaker testimonies to life. Definitely. And I think one of, I try to, I mean, with all humility, I, I try desperately to do that. Yes. And in fact, one of the challenges that I've had in the last year, certainly in the last six months over winter and lockdown, has been that I cannot travel and work with and people and and I found myself desperate to try and help people and I work with kind of a local homeless shelter and things like that but kind of learning how to accept myself as enough even if I'm not doing anything has been a mental health journey that I've gone on in the last year Um, and also learning what I can do from here so setting up I've set up a small um, charity that sends books out to that community in the Philippines so I gather local books that people give me here, local children's books, and ship them out. And just a couple of days ago, we received all of the photos of the children that I worked with in the Philippines opening this box of books and just the joy on their faces. One of them was holding up a picture of a butterfly, just like, wow, look at this. Um, and so, yeah, learning what we can do locally and in small ways, and also to value our own kind of innate value as as a human being in ourselves has been an important journey I think you touched on it there but maybe you might be able to expand on it how do we encourage others within our meeting to live out their faith I think we need to accept that not everybody has the same way of living it out not everybody wants to hike across the world and go and live in um, different communities with different people and that's okay I actually find um incredibly helpful to have people back home supporting me in doing that whether they're holding me in the light um, or um, supporting me financially or whatever it is and they find it conversely really helpful to have me going out and actively doing something and saying this is a photo of the girl that I was telling you about and, and and kind of balancing that and I think that works really well across age groups as well but also learning learning to appreciate the value of that I think one of the things I heard was that for every this is again a very Christian word that I wouldn't normally use at all but for every missionary you need 20 people back home praying and I think that you do what you do need within Quaker circles is an appreciation that everyone brings something different and so whether somebody is clerking their local meeting or whether somebody is teaching English abroad or running a charity or working for -for not-for-profit everybody gives what they have to give to the community. And that is what makes it a true community. There's a Quaker phrase that I absolutely love that I heard years ago in a meeting and has stuck with me. And it's goes something to paraphrase, something like this. But it says, instead of looking around us for what the world needs and trying to become that, look for what lights you up because what the world needs is more people who are lit up. With all the travel that you have done up to now, Mm-hmm. Is there much that you've learned about the world as a whole and how people interact with each other? Do you feel optimistic about the future, pandemic aside? I can't not feel optimistic about the future because across countries, across culture, across language, people are beautiful and kind. And one of the main things I've learned is the utter humility of going to another country wanting to help the world and finding that you obviously know nothing about how to get around, how to catch a bus, how to cook the food, how to speak the language, 
and people's kindness and generosity in helping you survive and and teaching you and and including you has including me has been so personal and so wonderful that I do I can't help but feel hopeful and I have not always felt hopeful at every single point but I do think that there is a difference between I think there's a difference between being happy and being joyful happy is a feeling from an external situation joy is a very specific chosen way of life chosen um, philosophy to hold and I feel hope is similar so I do feel I would say I don't feel happy when I look at the world and the way things are in a lot of these places but I choose to be optimistic and to focus because there's been a lot of pain in you know working in Israel in the last year there's been a lot of um, protests and shootings were a daily occurrence that I could um, experience and hear and see but I also saw the smiles and the laughter of the children and I think that's been such a, a blessing for me to work with the children and to see the beauty of the nature around the world because children are just innately innately joyful aren't they and I think that that's one of the things that my that's where my faith kicks in when I don't feel hopeful my faith is the thing that helps me to stay tethered and as you said earlier for me to grounded to what I do truly believe in all the places that you've been where's the one place or places that you have been surprised to find Quakers I was in a convent in the middle of the old city in Jerusalem on the rooftop uh, and it's a Catholic run convent looking out um, over the Dome of the Rock, the Wailing Wall and the Mount of Olives at sunset. And I heard the word in English and obviously you know, mostly hearing Hebrew or Arabic and I heard the word in English Quaker up to a group of older um, British uh, people, tourists, I suppose, that I was looking at. And I said, did you just say Quaker? Did you just say the word Quaker? And they were like, yes. And we ended up meeting and having a small meeting for worship with four of us on top of this Catholic convent in the centre of the holy city of Jerusalem. And I think that was the most kind of unusual place I've ever met Quakers. And the convent, it turned out, also had a guest house section and they were staying there while working with the, I can't remember exactly what the acronym <laughs> that we use for that is, but they were doing something with, um, like along the borders where you volunteer as Quakers and you go out and you kind of watch along the borders that the patrols are being done safely and the Arabic people are not being abused and they're being let across freely and you kind of document how many people are coming across in order really for accountability for the soldiers but also that we have a more accurate idea of what's going on and so that's what they were out there doing. Wow do you keep a journal Freya just listening to you it sounds like the work that you do is so transformative. I wish I did a better job at this honestly the amount of people who said to me don't you keep a journal honestly I'm dyslexic so I don't tend I write articles and I do document uh, each kind of visit that I do to other countries especially work where I've been um, 
sponsored by people and I need to send that back. Often I'll create small videos and do documentaries or write articles. But I have been thinking as an actress, it would be wonderful to do more video documentary because that's really the medium that I like to use to record this kind of thing. And just to have videos and, and to share the faces of these amazing, amazing local people in Indonesia, in, yeah, in Australia, in the Philippines, in Israel, in Macedonia. They're, they're just the most incredible people who work on the ground. And what tends to happen is people who are like that and so focused on the work that they're doing, they're not really publicizing it or sharing it with many people. And I think that so many people would be so interested in kind of seeing more. I would love to do more of that. Yeah. Do you find when you're in these different locations that often you are the only Quaker in that given area at any one time? Yes. So on, on, on that, do you find like almost like a, a sense of responsibility of sorts to represent Quakers at large? Does that ever cross your mind? It does cross my mind. And I do feel that. And often I've suggested, certainly I've, I've brought many times um, having a kind of a moment of appreciation, a moment of gratitude, a, a quiet minute before meals, especially um if it's a multi-faith meal. So a lot of people perhaps are Christian, Muslim or Jewish or a mixture of all three. I, I kind of prefer kind of moments of silence than prayer um, in many ways. I think, yeah, I do feel a sense and I do very much feel that this is Quaker ministry and Quaker outreach. The work that I'm doing for me is certainly led by my Quaker faith. And I think that what I would love is to work more with Quakers. I think a lot of people don't perhaps, wouldn't perhaps classify or see it as that, um, which I think is a shame because for me it is so linked in being representative. And often, you know, I'm not just the only Quaker in the um, area, I'm the only Quaker in the country, you know, in some places like Macedonia. I haven't heard of any other Quakers and I um, most people have, have never even heard of the, of the word Quaker. So I think that's really interesting. And I'd also love to go and do some more work out in some of the Quaker communities in Africa um, that we have. I think that would be that would be really wonderful to visit and experience. So how do we how do we better approach our outreach? Is that kind of the question there? I think the question is, how do we support the young people in living out their Quaker ministry in the world? Because their Quaker ministry might not look exactly the same, but it is outreach. When you're working, um, I, you know, I know your day job is working in the radio, that is Quaker outreach. And when I work and I go and I tell stories or do acting abroad, that is Quaker outreach. Um, to me because I'm living out my faith in that way and so I think when we're talking about traveling in the ministry supporting young people to do that and supporting them also in being able to record it and, and kind of including their voices and experiences in the Quaker story is really important. Now I come from the Lake District um, which a lot of people will know I come from Kendall where George Fox was preaching around and preaching I do may not be from a pulpit or a soapbox but I am still talking to people consistently every day about sustainability and these are 
um, Quaker values and what I hold dear. In fairness, the Lake District is, isn't the worst place to grow up. <laughs> I think it's one of the best places to grow up in ever. Yes, I, I love it. In Kendall, you're next to the Quaker Tapestries too. That's my local meeting house. Growing up, that was my yeah. local meeting house. Tell me more about your local meeting house and what you love about it. Oh, it's lovely. It's wonderful. As I said, it's, yeah, as you said, it's got the Quaker Tapestry. It's, it's literally next door to the meet, the room that we have meeting for worship in. It's a beautiful old building. And there's so many. There's Yaland local meeting. That meeting house is stunning. Um, and we have Brig Flats. That's a 200-year-old Quaker meeting building, and that's beautiful as well. And there is a sense when you go in, obviously we don't value buildings in there kind of as themselves. It's the gathering of people. But there is a sense of, of peace and quiet when you walk into these places that's lovely. And my meeting itself as well. I mean, I joined my meeting when I was 16, and I was the youngest person. I brought the average age down by, I think, about 50 years. And everyone was so welcoming and so kind and so encouraging. I used to go around to um, my friend Barbara's house for tea and cakes. And she would tell me stories about the travelling she'd done. And that, had in, that did inspire me so much and had so much influence. The Quakers that I experienced in meeting from age 16 in then the boldness that I have now to live my life and work, as you say, you know, in many countries and traveling, doing many different things is partly influenced by that. Finally, for now, we check in with Helen Fanning, who attends Churchtown Meeting in South Dublin. Helen has been involved with friends in the area for the past 40 years. I can't actually remember how I first heard of them, but it was in, probably in the late 80s. I had been reared a Catholic in Ireland wasn't terribly kind of fell away from it but felt I wanted to be part of something tried among others I think I tried the Baha'is and kind of drifted into long to Quakers and really and they're much as much which is going to sound very negative but I never found a good reason to leave which um Oddly enough, is common, and I, I think from discussions with others, not uncommon. But, um, and the interesting thing, quite a few others joined Churchtown around the same time. So we had a very interesting group of people finding friends through Quakers again and finding friends through friends at the same time. It just felt uh, both familiar and very, very interesting and at the same time quite new. So you're saying you, you first became uh, aware of Friends in the 80s? Yeah. Oh. I know everybody was on about the 80s being grim, but I don't have that sort of memory of that. Again, I probably, I had worked, I was probably then, I was in my 30s, 40s, 30s, and I was working, unlike a lot of younger people who were having difficulties finding jobs, so it wasn't a case, it didn't take over my life. You know the way some people go in and they kind of jump into it deep. It was just part of the many things I was involved in. Maybe over the years, as um, some things dropped out, um, left the sports club and a few other things. But 
I was involved in lots of things, choir, sports club, various things. It was just one of many things. But over the years, I probably concentrated more of my thoughts and efforts with friends. And it makes me very grateful for the night, for the larger mixed group we have here and the facilities we have here and the number of meeting houses and the structure we have here. And in terms of church time meeting, uh, what do you love about it? I suppose the people in it and their acceptance. We all know that we bring to it something different. We're each very different and we can accept that. We all know that we all probably have very different beliefs. And again, we can accept that. And there's a whole range of beliefs and thoughts and faith and doubts in church town. And yet beyond that, we are friends. And because of that, we are friends. Um, there's just this something that I have with people, not just in church town, but with friends generally, that I don't have with quite my other friends in a very different way, in, in acceptance an openness, but there's just an openness and an acceptance of our differences, which probably wouldn't happen in other groups. I don't, as I say, don't just mean faith groups. Even this morning, I was discussing with two other friends about the difference between a Zoom meeting for worship and a physical in a meeting house. One person, one of the two was like myself, found that the Zoom, I always regarded the Zoom meeting of worship, but it's all right, but it's not the real thing. And the other person, somebody else felt, no, this was, they, they got a lot out of it. Yeah, it was just the difference. One, one found that um, meeting for worship in Zoom, a bit like, like I felt, it's all very well, but nothing like the real thing, meeting up with people in person. Yeah, I've just been very fortunate that I got to friends and met friends when I did because it answered a lot of questions and needs for me in my beliefs and the change in my beliefs over the years. I think in another, in another faith group, you would be presented with beliefs and they would not change, which some people find very reassuring, whereas I find exactly the opposite. I find that things change, that we're on a continuity. And while my opinions and thoughts change on things, I'm still accepted in friends. And I know most other Quakers and friends are doing exactly the same thing. The difficulty is trying to explain who we are. Even my own brother recently, um, I was talking about friends and I knew trying to explain that you have no creed, that the only creed is there's that of God and everyone. And we all define God differently. I think he kind of looked at me and couldn't quite understand it. And when he was talking about the time that uh, Ryan Tuberty went down to the Quaker Museum, I said, oh, I might have to go down there myself to find out what Quakers are all about because I'm explaining it so badly. <laughs> It is very difficult to understand, to explain briefly. And I can see people like 
to be told that we believe A, B, C, and D. And if that's, uh, and that is so difficult to explain that there is this vague thing of seeing God in everyone else, which as I always add, it's easy when you're talking to somebody or with somebody that you like and you get on with. The difficulty is seeing God in the person that you don't get on with. And that's where, you know, that's what it all comes down to. I might try and explain it a bit better to my brother another day. And just on that, do you think it's very different for somebody who's born into friends as to somebody who finds it later in life? Um, yes, they understand the set of, some, yes, some of them understand the whole organisation and the setup and the importance of committee and meetings, but then different families approach it all differently. I rather envy the young people who have been brought up with this openness. And at the same time, and this, I would miss the second, this is going to, I can, I'm not, I hope I can explain this properly. At the same time, I appreciate the secular, the cultural part of the, of the Christianity that I learned about in school. And that's very much from a tourist. I mean, so much of our history is based on the explanation of Christianity, trying to explain modern civilization through non-Christian eyes can be quite difficult. Yeah, it's trying to, it's trying to, I feel I was fortunate to have had the explanation of Christianity and the cultural and social and history of it while I was younger. And then it came to later on and I was starting to think about things. I was fortunate to find friends at the right time. Just briefly, in terms of finding that spiritual space during the week when you're not gathered for worship on a Sunday morning with others in that virtual space these days, um, what sort of outlets do you have? Um, I wouldn't be somebody who would sit and read Quaker books or Quaker uh, literature very much. So I don't quite have that. I might think about things that people have said or things that people have done. That's a very good question. What do I... Yeah, I, I'm kind of, again, I'm fortunate in that I have an appreciation and I'm grateful for things. And oddly enough, that's a great mental health message as well. But it's also very much, I think, a friend's way, I would feel it, it's a friend's way of, of dealing with things and looking at things. The gratitude, generally during the week, there's um, nearly always some other Quaker commitment, either a committee meeting or even a social gathering, or there's always some way of keeping in touch with the people involved. And that's just so important. And that's the bit that keeps me grounded. And that's the bit that um, keeps me in touch with the basics of friends and Quakers generally. I, I is, I'm not someone who would sit and read Quaker literature or books or stuff. Although, yeah, I suppose I would always, I would always have subscribed to the friendly word. And somebody gave me some 
the British Friend magazine recently, and I really enjoy reading them. Yeah, other than that, it's contact and a basic um, basis. The base, I would hope that the basis of my beliefs are, are rooted in Quaker thought. What is it that you love about the Quaker business methods or sitting on a committee? Love is probably not the correct word. <laughs> what I appreciate about the Quaker form of business, I think it's a very clever idea to agree on your minute with, with everyone there. And once or twice on other committees, I've had to do that to clarify, look, what are we going, what are we saying here? I remember on a a completely separate committee, not a Quaker committee, some years ago, two people were having an argument and I was supposed to be keeping the minutes. I said, hold on, I think the two of you are saying the, the correct, the same thing there. Can we agree on what I put in the minutes? And when the whole committee sat and agreed what we were going to put in the minute, it turned out the two of them were actually saying the same thing, but using very different language. And I don't know if without uh, having sat through so many Quaker committees, I would have had the courage, is that the word I'm looking for? The insight to say that, you know, what are we going to put into the minutes? What, what are you saying here? I think I appreciate that. It can, draw, it can be annoying at times that you would spend so long almost quibbling over the use of one or two words. But now I find... I'm the one who's quibbling over the use of words. So I can see the importance of getting it right. Just finally, what do you think it is that makes Irish Quakers unique? That's a very difficult one because I know them so well and the other Quakers, I've friends and Quakers I've met around the world, I've only met briefly and I'm more inclined to find the, the similarities I, can't, I find that one difficult to answer. I find the similarities with friends easier to cope with rather than the differences. Some years ago, in fact, one of my last trips abroad was in 2018. Yeah, in 2018, I was with a group of Quakers from all over um, Europe and we were protesting outside an arms fair in Paris and even though I, one, a few of them, that was the interesting thing, a few of them I had known from other groups and um, world gatherings and the EMAS, or they had come to Ireland for Ireland yearly meeting. Some of them I had never met before. I would probably never meet again. But just that blend that we could, talking the same language, it was just so interesting. And because this arms fair was being protected and guarded by very strict private security company. The first few days they were really tight with us, but as in, in each mid morning we would send somebody would go off and get coffee, and it was interesting. They would go up and they'd ask the security guards, "Do any of you uh, want a cup of coffee?" And the first day or two. They were really suspicious of this. They thought we were up to something. And then as the week went on and they saw that we were just buying coffee for everybody, including them. And by the Friday, they too were accepting the coffee. It was something very inclusive. And this wasn't something we planned. Nobody said, 
ask the security men. We just seemed to automatically do it, even though we were friends from all over Europe with different backgrounds and different meetings. Our technique was kind of similar. And it was only afterwards that that, I, I, that, that occurred to me. I only ask you specifically that question because I know that you were one of the lucky ones who were part of the Irish contingent that went to the World Gathering in Kenya. Mm -hmm. I'm right in saying that, am I? Yes, and not only that, I was fortunate enough to go to Peru as well. So, you know, when you're part of that bigger, wider group of, of worldwide friends, do you feel like there is something unique that makes us um, know, stand, stand out? Or Yeah, I'd like to be able to say, I always come away from that full of I, I come away I've been as uh, I've been to two world gatherings I've been to three because I was at the one in Ireland I, I was working on that but I, I went as a representative to the one in Kenya and to the one in Peru and actually come away with such um admiration for what other friends and group of friends and the work that they're doing and how despite in some areas, huge complications, but for some of them, they get involved in work that is quite difficult. One group of Bolivian friends are working with a group of very um, disadvantaged Bolivians that seem to be treated in their country much the same way as we treat travelers. And this is their work and how well they do it and they would not be people with the resources we have. So I come away from that with a great admiration. I can't, as a, I, I can't say what makes us unique because I know us so well. I just feel very grateful that I do know this group of Irish friends so well. I'm very fortunate to have them. And the difficulty, I hope that in the future, I hope that in the future we will be able to keep these contacts and these personal contacts alive as we were able to when, when things were that bit easier because travel over the next few years is just going to be a little bit more difficult than it has been. Do you think the pandemic has shown the relevance of Quakers and how important it is? I hope it does. I hope that we come out of this stronger and that we're able to adapt to the use of technology so well that it will help us to, to keep in touch and blend both technology-wise and people-wise and friends-wise, that we are able to, to maintain our relevance. I hope so. And with that, we reach the end of another episode of The Friendly Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, don't forget you can subscribe to our social channels. And if you'd like to find out more about Quakers in Ireland, check us out online at quakers.ie.